not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be me- is the measure that you will get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye and do not notice the log in your own? How can you say to your neighbor, let me take that speck out of your eye while there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw pearls before swine. They will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you, if your child asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, give him a snake? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this is the law and the prophets. Thank you, Carol. Hey, good morning. Ah, It's great to be here with you this morning. If we have not met, my name's Hannah, and I get to lead our hospitality team. So normally on a Sunday morning, I get to be in the lobby in the back of the room, hanging out with my team. You guys are awesome. And uh, that's where, that's kind of my comfort zone. That's where I like to be. But a few Sundays a year, I get to give the message. And I'm excited to kind of take a closer look at these first 12 verses in Matthew 7 with y'all. So I started preparing for this morning about a month ago, and when I first read through this section, to me it seemed really miscellaneous and really random. And I thought, you know, I wonder if Jesus is kind of, he's getting towards the end or kind of in the last quarter of his Sermon on the Mount. I thought, I wonder if maybe the crowd's just getting hungry and restless, and so Jesus is going, I gotta fit all this stuff in, so I'm just gonna pack it in at the end. That's actually not what's happening at all. I was very wrong. What's happening is there's a very intentional order and a very intentional progression which, which, with how Jesus kind of moves through this section. And so to summarize kind of an overview of, of where we're heading, the first six verses of this section really speak to kind of our human attitudes and our human practices with how we relate to those closest to us. So Jesus, using these examples, Jesus is demonstrating how we so often kind of seek to control or manage those closest to us through blame and condemnation and judgment. And once we've kind of judged or disapproved, we like to offer our wonderful, in quotes, wonderful solutions to those problems that we see. That's the first six verses. And then the last six verses, Jesus is saying there's, like, there's a different way with which we can relate to each other. There's a kingdom way, kind of a Christ-centered way, that instead of disapproving, we can relate to each other in, in a better way. And so he kind of shows us how to do that. As I was getting ready for this morning, there were a couple questions that just kept coming up in my preparation that I wanted to just share with you to, to put at the forefront of your mind as we kind of walk through these verses this morning. And the first question was this, can we successfully negotiate personal relationships without letting people know we disapprove? And this is a question right out of Dallas Willard's Divine Conspiracy, and a lot of what I'm saying kind of comes right from his, his section in the Divine Conspiracy on the Sermon on the Mount. 
But as I read this question, I kind of laughed at it because I don't view myself as someone that walks around spouting disapproval to everyone in my life, and I imagine you don't think of yourself in that way either. But as this question's been in the forefront of my mind over the past month or so, I realize that disapproval often comes out in a lot of small ways. We can offer hints of disapproval or or passive-aggressive comments or maybe sarcastic remarks. The second question I was asking myself is, what happens when we condemn someone? What happens when we disapprove of someone? What's happening like mentally and psychologically in that interaction? A few weeks ago, I had an interaction that was really reflective of what I think Jesus is, is kind of talking about, especially in these first six verses. So I just wanted to share this with you really quickly, and then we're going to jump into to some more detail. And I've and before I share, I've, I've gotten permission to share this, so don't worry about Scott. He's fine. <laughs> over the 4th of July weekend, Scott and I road tripped over to North Dakota to visit some of my family in Dickinson. And when Scott and I road trip, he does about 80 to 90% of the driving, which is great because I do 80 to 90% of the snacking and the napping. So it works out great. So on our way back, we were coming back on July 5th, back to Helena, and we stopped in Billings to get some gas, and I noticed he was pretty tired, and so I said, let me drive, let me drive the two hours to Bozeman, where we were going to stop to get lunch. I said, okay, great, so we switched places, and I, I thought he fell asleep, and I'm driving along, and we hit a bunch of traffic, there was a ton of RVs and motorhomes and semis on the road for Montana, it felt like a lot of traffic. So I went to pass kind of this cluster of slow-moving RVs and campers. So I'm in the left lane trying to pass, and a camper kind of cuts over right in front of me. So I got annoyed, and I was maybe following them a little closer than I should. And from the passenger seat, I hear, hey, maybe you don't want to follow them so closely. And I had some sarcastic comment like, hey, I've got it. Like, don't worry about it. And I thought he went back to sleep. So I kept driving. And about 10, 15 minutes later, it started to rain. And I'd been driving with my cruise control on. And I know that you're not supposed to drive in the rain with your cruise control on. I actually know that. I have no idea why. But I've just been told that, so that's what I do. So I thought, okay, is it raining hard enough for me to shut my cruise control off here? And as soon as I said that, I hear again from the passenger seat, you need to shut your cruise control off. And I lost it. I got so mad. And now, it's kind of, not that I don't get mad, but fear and anxiety and worry is kind of my go-to emotion. So, but in this case, I just got mad, and Scott was kind of shocked. And I got so mad that at the next exit, I actually pulled off the highway, I stopped the car, and I got out, and I said, if my driving isn't good enough, you're going to do it. You're going to do all the driving. So he, we switched spots, and he was kind of surprised and wasn't sure why I was so mad. So I was sitting in the passenger seat just fuming mad, and we kind of take off down the road, and, and Scott's driving. So after about 10 minutes or so, I start to calm down, and this is when the psychology major in me starts to take over. And I start to ask myself, why did I react that way? Like, why did I have such this intense anger reaction to a couple of corrective comments? And as I was processing, and as I was thinking about this, I actually said out loud, you don't trust me. And this totally took Scott off guard. He was like, what are you talking about? And I said, 
you just don't think I'm a trustworthy person. And he said, what are you talking about? I just wanted you to slow down. <laughs> so we kept driving, and I'm not kidding. Like 10 minutes later, he goes to pass, and someone's in front of him, and he's tailgating the person in front of him like no one's business. And I just sat there, and I glared at him. I just sent him evil eyes from the passenger seat. And I think he could sense my frustration, and he kind of looked at me, and we just started laughing because this interaction was just so ridiculous. But I think it kind of mirrors what we're getting at or what Jesus is trying to get at in this text and in this section of Matthew. Just to start out at the, at the top here, it says, Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Now, Jesus isn't talking about, like, a judge in a courtroom here. He's talking about the judgments and the disapprovals that happen within our everyday interactions. And I got a couple things from this section. And the first kind of note that I pulled out was this idea of seeing clearly. And I think it's important that we ask ourselves, what am I missing What's looming in front of me that I'm not dealing with? What do I need to fix? What do I need to work on? And what do I need to deal with before I can correct or reach out and, and try and help another person? And the second point that I, I thought, so in addition to seeing clearly, I thought about pausing. And I think in order to ask ourselves these questions, what's skewing my perspective? What am I missing? What do I need to deal with? What do I need to fix? I think that means we have to take a big, long pause. I started practicing yoga kind of on and off about seven years ago, I think. And so when you practice yoga, at least in, in a studio, at the end, at the end of your practice, it's, we do what I call a yoga nap. So... That's not what you're supposed to do, but that's what I call it in my head. So at the end of your practice, you're supposed to lay down on your mat, on your back, and you're supposed to take about a five-minute pause. And they always say, this is where you kind of formulate your intentions. You notice where your body is holding stress. You think about, what am I dealing with? You know, what do I need to address here? And at first, when I started doing this, I thought those five minutes were the biggest waste of time because I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to get back to life. I wanted to get back to work. I thought it was just a waste of time. But throughout the past several years, I've incorporated kind of pausing in this intentional reflection in not only after yoga practices, but in my morning quiet times and my prayer times, maybe through centering prayer. And I've, I think that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here, like the importance of pausing and being able to ask ourselves kind of these important questions. What's going on with us? I noticed, too, um, towards the end, if you see, Jesus doesn't rule out the possibility of help. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to help your neighbor. This reminded me of those oxygen masks that fall out of the ceiling in airplanes, and I've never been in that situation, but 
Because I'm an Enneagram 6, I know what you're supposed to do in that situation. So if the oxygen mask falls from the ceiling, you're supposed to put it on yourself first before you start helping other people. You gotta make sure you're okay and you're not gonna pass out before you start assisting others. And I think that's kind of a parallel to what Jesus is trying to get across in this section of the text. So to keep going, in verse six, do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. I don't think Jesus is comparing a people group or certain people to dogs or pigs. I'm not on board with that thinking. And I don't think that he's saying some people aren't worthy. What I think this kind of section is speaking to is a question of helpfulness. What are dogs supposed to do with something that's holy? Is it helpful to them? Is it nourishing? Can they use it in any way? No. What are pigs supposed to do with pearls? Are they helpful? Are they nourishing in any way? No. So I actually kind of got hung up on the the pearl thing and why Jesus maybe mentioned a pearl in this situation. And so I started looking up the history of pearls. And in case you're wondering, PBS has a huge documentary about it. I didn't watch it, but I found an article that I skimmed briefly and pulled out these following points. That before the 1900s, pearls were very, very valuable. Before we could kind of manufacture them and man-make them, they were called the queen of the gems. And they were the most valuable gem you could have. And if you had a string of pearls, kind of in the ancient world, a string of pearls that were all the same size, it was said that you had something that was incomparable to anything else in value. So they were saved for like royalty and the elites of that time. So thinking about that, if we turn, we go back to the dynamics of personal relationships and helpfulness that Jesus is kind of talking about in this section, I think what he's saying is you might have something so good and so valuable and so helpful, but if that person's not interested, that person doesn't want it, or that person's not ready, it's not helpful. And then Dallas Willard in his book goes a little bit further and he says so often these, these good things or these pearls or wisdom or incitement, so often we offer these with an air of superiority that ultimately we just get distracted from the people we're trying to help. I ask myself, what happens when we condemn someone? What is happening when we disapprove of someone? I think what happens, and this is kind of what I felt on our road trip back that I just shared, what I realized is we very quickly go from my actions are bad to, well, maybe I am bad. And so if I am bad, maybe I am unlovable or, or untrustworthy or, or rejectable or not acceptable. And it's, I think it's important to note the person doing the correcting or the person disapproving rarely intends, we rarely intend total rejection. But that's so often what comes across. I think it has something to do with this psychological idea of cognitive dissonance. So briefly, cognitive dissonance is based on this idea that we as people like consistency. We like order. And so we like it when our beliefs and our actions and our ideologies all line up. Cognitive dissonance happens when we're presented with differing ideologies or maybe our behavior doesn't match what we think or do. 
And I think that's what kind of happens here, is we generally like to think we're good people and we're doing our best, and so when someone disapproves or tries to correct us, we kind of go down this path towards, wait, they're telling me I'm a bad person, but I don't believe that, so actually, you're the problem. You're the one with the issues, not me. And it leads to something that, that Dallas Willard calls the reciprocity of condemnation. Throw that around, you'll sound really smart. The reciprocity of condemnation. And this explains why condemning or disapproving as a helping strategy like, doesn't work, it fails. Because when we condemn and we disapprove, often we're met with anger and anger attacks. And so I think when we get caught in this cycle of disapproving and, and being angry and attacking, it leads to something called contempt. And, and I had to look up contempt because it was a little bit vague to me. And it means regarding anything as vile or worthless or despicable. And so I think this is where kind of the first six verses and these examples are kind of showing this human response to how we kind of interact and how we correct one another, which is kind of depressing. It's kind of a downer. And that would be true if there weren't the next six verses to kind of show us another way. So who can correct? What does it look like to correct someone biblically? What do we do with this desire to be helpful? In Paul's letter to the Galatians, there's some really interesting insight into kind of who can correct and what this looks like to correct in a helpful way. And I picked the message translation of this because I liked some of the wording a little bit better. And it says this, live creatively, friends. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. Stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. If you think you are too good for that, you are badly deceived. So Dallas Willard pulls out four points from this section of the text that kind of gives insight as to how we're supposed to help and how we're supposed to correct. And the first one is be sure of sin. Be absolutely sure that there's wrongdoing happening. The second one is not just anyone is supposed to correct. In other translations, it says the spiritual ones among you are to correct. And so I think that means if we're to correct someone, we better, again, be seeing clearly and pausing and making sure that we're really intentionally praying and asking for guidance in this situation. The third example or the third kind of point is correction doesn't mean kind of lining, like getting someone in line or straightening them out. It's meant to be restoring, restoring to the kingdom community. And that's where I liked the wording of like the stoop down and the reach out and the share our burdens. It's to include someone and restore someone into community. And the fourth point, the fourth and final point to this is knowing you could do the same thing. Like you might be the one who's being corrected before the day is over. And this, I feel like, removes some of that superiority that we so often correct with. Jesus is 
an expert at transforming the dynamics of our personal relationships. And when I spoke a couple weeks ago about loving our enemies, we talked about Jesus and his third way. And he offers a third way to interact with others, not, not through flight or not through fight, but kind of this way that we can oppose evil and violence without mirroring it. And I think kind of that concept comes into play in this section. If I'm condemning you, or I'm disapproving of something you're doing, I'm making myself your problem as well. You are forced to respond to me. And I think instead what Jesus is saying is, whoa, 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 let's maintain a non-manipulative presence, a presence that stoops down and that reaches out and that offers to share burdens. And then what Dallas Willard says is, you know, as we listen, as we maintain this kind of posture of reaching out and, and opening up and including, this is where he says the healing dynamic of request will come quite naturally into play. And so what do we do with this desire to help? I think it's just in the next few verses. Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, when I first started studying this, I thought that that just referred to our prayer relationship with God and kind of how we're supposed to interact with God. And so next week, actually, Justin's going to talk about prayer and kind of our posture towards God. But I think this also applies to how we're supposed to relate with others instead of judging and disapproving Maybe we're just supposed to ask what we need. Maybe we're just supposed to seek out what we would like from them. Maybe we're supposed to go against this instinct to disapprove and condemn. And again, just request. I tried to kind of sum up this idea, and I found this, this paragraph from Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I wanted to read to you because I think it just sums up this idea really succinctly. Because Christ stands between me and others, I dare not desire direct fellowship with them. As only Christ can speak to me in such a way that I might be saved, so others too can be saved only by Christ himself. This means I must release the other person from every attempt of mine to regulate, coerce, and dominate him with my love. Thus the spiritual love will speak to Christ about a brother more than to a brother about Christ. It knows that the most direct way to others is always through prayer to Christ and that love of others is wholly dependent upon the truth in Christ. So in, in his conclusion, kind of on this section of text, Dallas Willard makes this statement. And this statement says, we cannot have one posture towards God and a different posture towards people. And this actually wasn't in my prep for this week until Friday night. So Friday night, we went to the Trace Adkins concert in Bozeman. And it was great. It was super fun. He was awesome. And also, I don't like crowds. Huge, loud crowds are not my comfort zone. We were at the fair, and so there were huge lines for drinks and food and to get in, and there were just people everywhere. And so I found myself having some very ugly thoughts towards our fellow human beings. And so I was kind of going down this garbage chute of disapproving, judging thoughts, and this statement just popped into my head out of nowhere. 
We cannot have one posture towards God and a different posture towards people. So you know, I feel like this, that could be a whole message in and of itself, but I just wanted to share that with you and kind of leave that with you wherever, however that might, might land with where you're at. What if instead of disapproving of people, what if instead of judging people, we just asked them what we needed? We just stood before them with our requests while simultaneously standing before God with our requests for them. So we're going to take communion just in a couple minutes. And so I, I just wonder if we could use this time to think about how might our personal interactions and the dynamics of those relationships be transformed if we moved from a more judging or disapproving approach to just a more asking approach. Like, what would that look like? How do you think some relationships in your life might be changed or transformed? So I'm going to pray, and the band is going to come up, and our ushers are going to lead us through communion. God, thank you so much for our relationships. We just pray for couples and, and spouses and students and families that we could use, use this guidance to transform the dynamics of our relationships and, and those who we interact with so closely every day. Thanks so much for your son and his story just the guidance that we have in you. We love you. Amen. If you would like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.